0: Ladies and gentlemen,
1: can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I am very excited about today's guest, um, in part because I think the last two times he was on here, uh, David French uh, talked to him instead of me, and uh, that made me jealous. So um, uh, I've decided to have Jonathan Rauch, who's a senior fellow at the Hated Brookings Institution. Um, You know, uh, one day we will, we will, um, take care of that place like G Gordon Liddy wanted to
0: everything tank needs an epithet. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, it's just, I grew up at AI and so Brookings was my, you know, my Carthage must be destroyed. Brookings, Delenda Est kind of,
0: you know, we've softball rivalry, the whole thing. Um, yeah. Just so you know, the epithet we use for AI is the would be AI. It's
1: <laughs> <laughs> not bad. Um, we can get into that. Um, and, uh, um, We can maybe come up with some uh, uh, modifiers for the Heritage Foundation too. But um, I had an epiphany yesterday because I was working to get my LA Times column done early and I was writing about uh, primaries. And as many listeners know, um, I hate primaries. And I think they're one of the chief reasons why our parties are dysfunctional and weak. And, um, and I said as much on Twitter the other day and all these people started attacking me, why do you hate democracy, yada, yada, yada. And so in the great spirit, who's the most relevant political scientist on this topic anyway, of E.E. Schatzneider, I'm going to expand the scope of conflict and bring in an intellectual ally, uh, to help me, uh, talk through some of these issues. And that's Jonathan Rauch. And, uh, Jonathan wrote a great piece for the Atlantic a while back on, why primaries are screwing everything up, and uh, Jonathan, thank you. For, and we're going to talk about other stuff too. But I just uh, that was that was the the eureka moment that made me say I had to have you back on. So
0: thank you for coming. Well, happy to be here. I should say two things. The first is that that Atlantic article was co-authored with Ray LaRaja, who's a fantastic political scientist at UMass Amherst. And the second thing I should say is I know why you're doing this, Jonah. I am <laughs> on to you, which is. I am going to come out as so much less democratic than you are that you're going to deflect your hate stream to me. <laughs> and, and I'm here to say I'm okay with that. <laughs> Let the hate flow. Um, so I,
1: why, don't, why don't we just sort of, s- as level setting, start off with um, what, are the pro- what, what are the main problems with primaries as you see
0: it? Um, primaries are, first of all, unrepresentative. They don't even represent the mainstream of their parties because the people who turn out to vote in primaries tend to be from the extreme wings of their parties. Um, The 2016 presidential election, I believe, was basically the, the candidates on both sides were chosen by about 16%, I think, of the eligible primary voters. So primaries turn out to be, in that sense, less representative than the old smoke-filled rooms because the charge of the guys, because there was always guys in the smoke-filled room, was, okay, let's see if we can come up with a candidate who is acceptable to most of the party. Um, so they will try to walk out of the room with most people having a stake in the outcome. Here's the second problem. The smoke-filled room guys were also looking for someone who could govern and who could be accountable to the party in government. So these would be people who would, for example, not shut down the government over a debt limit bill in order to just, to pick a random example, improve their standing with their primary voters in Texas. Um, primaries don't do that, because the people who turn out to vote tend not to like compromise. They see it as wishy-washy. On the Republican side, they call you a rhino. So the effect of this in government makes it much harder to strike compromises because people are busy playing to the base of the primary. So you've got problems in governing. You've got problems selecting candidates. Primaries are old. We should probably talk about where they came from and why they seem to work for a long time. Um, Why what's happened recently is not all that sudden.
1: Yeah, so why don't we do that? I mean, like the primaries, as I think uh, you guys put in the piece, were once sort of like beauty pageants but they weren't, um, they weren't determinative because the people who controlled the delegations from their states still control the delegations in their states and could say, screw you to the primary voters. Um, um, you know, and as late as what, I should say as late as 1968, I mean, like primaries start with the progressives where they were trying to inject some populist stuff into the, into the process. But, you know, as late as 1968, the person who came in, I think, sixth in the Democratic primaries was the nominee. Um, the, the, the idea that they matter is a very, it's, it's, I'm older than this system that we have.
0: Yes, yes, correct. Now, they, they always mattered in the sense that they were important sounding boards and they were advisory and they showed the party elite whether a candidate could actually campaign, what their political skills were like, could they raise money um, and all of that. So they were never insignificant, and they continued to work until about 2016 because of what I think is the key insight, which is the system works best when you have a partnership between political professionals, those are the smoke-filled room people, and the party base, and you need both. And for a long time, we were able to strike that balance with primaries. 1968, people don't like the fact that Hubert Humphrey is chosen as the nominee without entering a single primary. He did have surrogates who entered for him. They reform the system so that the primaries become all determining, first in the Democratic Party, then in the Republican Party. The Democrats immediately have a disaster with this system by nominating George McGovern, who loses in 49 states. By the way, guess who wrote the primary rules that nominated McGovern? McGovern. McGovern, yeah. Democratic Party poo-bahs get together and say, something's gone wrong here. Uh, 1976, they get saddled with Carter, who then loses to Reagan. Epic disaster, Democrats think. So what both parties do in this period is they invent something called the invisible primary. And this goes back to a combined system. But instead of a formal system, what happens is in order to be viable in a primary, a candidate kind of needs the mark of approval of the party. So they have to show they can raise a certain amount of money. They have to go and and kiss the rings of all the interest groups. You know, it would be the Chamber of Commerce if you're a Republican and the unions if you're a Democrat. Uh, they have to show they can build media support. So the invisible primary kind of amounts to an informal way of doing the same thing. And so you continue to have this partnership between elites and the public. And it works pretty well. And people like me go around saying what I say for years, which is the American public makes good candidate choices not realizing that the American public only makes good candidate choices when there are good choices to make. Donald Trump then blows through this in 2016. So, by the way, does Bernie Sanders, though he can't quite get the nomination, the party's able to stop him. That's their job. That's not a scandal. That's their job. He's not even a Democrat. Trump, of course, is not a Republican, famously. Trump is the guy, and kind of Sanders, who realizes that the invisible primary is a paper tiger. That with his own base of celebrity, with um, small donor fundraising, which you can do online, bypassing the traditional media, trolling, doing all the things he does, he realizes, wait a minute, I don't need the party at all. This was building for a while. Barack Obama circumvented his party. I think that's part of why Hillary Clinton lost. The Democratic Party machine could have dragged her across the finish line if Obama hadn't dismantled it. So all of this is going on and Trump becomes a decisive factor. And he's the guy who shows the world, you know what? You can be anybody and win a primary, absolutely anybody. You can be someone in Georgia who cannot put an English sentence together and is obviously unfit to govern, but it doesn't matter. If you can win the sliver of people who show up in those primaries and get the nomination, most races won't be competitive and off you go. See change in American politics.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, um, um, it's worth, like, so Elaine K. Mark, your colleague, um, who will um, be spared when we destroy Brookings. Um, she, uh, she's the first one to point this out. I can't remember where, but, you know, about the importance, one of the features of the old system, which we can both agree had drawbacks. I mean, you pointed to one, it was basically just men for, a, you know, a long time, but that was reflective of other problems in society. It wasn't like, it was, it was, it was part of the, larger problems with society. It wasn't central to the whole point. Um, but like the advantage of one of the advantages of the old system was that political transactions and negotiations were done non-transparently. And you can, if you had gone to the, under the old rules, if you had gone to the governor of Pennsylvania who controlled the delegation for his party or his state, you know, or for his party, I should say, um, and said, Hey, I'm going to run for president. And he says, okay, so what are you going to do? And he says, well, I'm going to, you know, uh, I'm going to build a giant wall. I'm going to ban all the Muslims. Um, um, and just runs through basically the sort of the Trump boob bait, the governor up in like, get the hell out of my office. Similarly, if it was a Democrat, he says, well, I'm going to, whatever Bernie wanted to do, uh, uh, uh you know, uh, nationalize the means of production and take over the radio stations, whatever. And the guy would say the same thing, get the hell out of my office. But if you can like, um, Mark anity with the, with Caesar's toga work the digital or cable mob into applying pressure from outside on elected officials, you don't need to do any negotiating because what you're basically doing is just creating, um, uh, an extortion racket where you have your strongest followers attack the person. And, um, and that's one of the things having seen it firsthand, um, that was what Trump did in 2016 to get so many Republicans and media people, um, to get on board is that no one was willing to endure the Twitter hate and the public scorn and all the rest that came with criticizing Donald Trump. And um, and I think this gets at one of the larger problems we have in our society is that we've, we've fallen in love with transparency to the point where we've hit, we've passed the point of diminishing returns on a lot of government. I've, I've come around belatedly to think that C-SPAN cameras were a mistake in in Congress. Um, where do you come
0: down on all of that? Well, it depends on the situation. on um, On the nominating process Specifically, there actually was a pretty high amount of transparency in the days of the smoke-filled rooms because a lot of what happened didn't happen behind closed doors. A lot of it was, remember, the coin of the realm was endorsements. Mm -hmm. That's how you showed the world that you were ready to govern, that you could actually win. You'd line up all the endorsements from all of the groups, and you'd be saying publicly how you got this and what you're going to do, and they'd be saying why they supported you. Um endorsements now are are worth much less, you know, Donald Trump didn't really care who endorsed him. He cared mm-hmm. a little bit, but but not very much and he didn't have to. So there was this mixture of private and public. And again, it's a hybrid and and that's why it worked. And yeah, you're right that things were said privately that you can't say in public. Um and sometimes those would be in the nature of promises, but I think just as often they would be in the nature of realism, like, you know, look, Jonah, I want to support your union, I'll be a friend. There's some things I will and won't be able to do. Mm-hmm. So you can have that kind of conversation, right? You can have a grown-up conversation. So the trick to that system is it's hybrid and it's it's got all of this stuff going on. Um, it gets, as you say, much starker when you're dealing with the primary electorate, which which is by design. It's not there to build a coalition. It's it's not there. To look across the spectrum of the party and say, okay, how do we bring in the center right? How do we bring in the libertarians? How do we bring in the MAGA people? What do we do about the Christians? It's there for each voter to pick the one candidate that expresses them the most. And, you know, that's often the craziest person. As, um, as, as one Republican said, I'll come up with a name in a minute when I'm not thinking about it, he said, uh, he's a conservative. He said, I used to think people were voting for me because of my firm conservative Tea Party credentials. Now I just realize it's because I'm the craziest son of a bitch in the room. Thomas Massey. Um, Thomas Massey. Yeah, the arm
1: yeah. to the, the, the teeth Christmas card guy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so in the bigger question of transparency, some of it is good. Especially as, as far as outcomes, it is a good thing that people can, I think, get online and watch public hearings. They can read bills. They can look at what Congress is doing. The problem is when you put the cameras inside the negotiating room, right. and then things fall apart. When you're when you're there with the public involved in every process, you can't have a grown-up conversation about politics. Um, what tends to happen is either you don't get stuff passed because a, a deal isn't isn't as as they say. Nothing is finished until, nothing is agreed until everything is agreed, right? Because you've got all these pieces of these packages flying around. You know, I'm going to get the airport and um, you're going to get the water project. So we're both going to vote for the defense bill, but that means accepting more money from Ukraine and so forth. So that's impossible to do when the first thing anybody says is made public and the interest groups swarm you. Right. And everyone says, no, you can't do that. So the deal never gets off the ground. So I think the answer is less transparency in the process and plenty of transparency in the outcome.
1: Yeah, no, I agree with that entirely. Like you need to know, we have every right to know what the government has done and hold them accountable at elections and, and all that. But like, you can't say, say you're trying to come up with a way to like get the fiscal house and the US government in order and you're negotiating about, Social Security cuts, no Democrat and basically no Republican at this point can in front of a camera say, all right, would you meet me halfway if I agreed to cut the COLA in half or raise the retirement age to 68 or whatever? If you and then I agreed to more taxes on this, you would just get destroyed if it was on C-SPAN in real time. But if you can get the whole package put together and show people, okay, this is. This is what we gave and this is what they gave and, and all the rest. You'll still get blowback, but at least you'll have something to judge in its totality rather than get thrown under the bus in real time before you can,
0: you can close the deal. Yeah, one of the conventions people lose sight of is that, again, in our lifetime, lots of congressional votes were voice votes. mm mm-hmm. And and that made it much harder to fry an individual candidate for a particular vote. Now, the usually the vote on the main bill would be an on-the-record vote, but lots of the amendment votes and lots of the votes, you know, where you're trying to, to tie the sandbag on the other guy by, you know, putting up the embarrassing amendment, those would have been voice votes. Mm-hmm. A lot of the committee votes were voice votes. So... You think, well, that's undemocratic. We should know how every member of Congress votes all the time. Well, actually, it's not that important to know how every member of Congress votes on every single issue. It's often better if you don't need to know that so that they can just get on with the business of saying, okay, we've agreed to that. Another thing that's happened is you used to be able to kind of close the door of the committee room for a while and have these conversations. Um, Opening all that up has meant the conversations don't go away. They just go to even less transparent places. I was talking to a staff member a couple of years ago and he said, so where this happens now is the coffee break room. Mm-hmm. So is that really better?
1: Right. Um, all right back, back to prime minister for a second. So I, you, you kind of answered this, but there was, you know, your point about how we had primaries and they didn't seem to be disastrous for a long time. Um, um, or that's disastrous by the wrong word, but you know, the, they didn't seem to be a problem for a long time. And they worked, they seemed they, to work. They seemed to work. And usually they did. But so how much of that problem, I mean, this is, this is one of the reasons why I brought up E.E. E. Schatzneider is, you know, he writes this, he's this famous political scientist, who was the lead author for the American political science associations, big report in 1950 called, uh, what was it? Towards a more healthy two-party system or something like that. And what he wanted was health, was more robust parties that offered people a clear choice. And, um, and I'm very sympathetic to that, right? Cause the whole point of democracy and this gets into your brilliant constitution of knowledge. Um, uh, I'm sorry, constitution, constitutional of knowledge. No constitution. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. That's it. Um, Uh, The the key word there was brilliant, though. (laughs) Um, uh, Thank you. The key phrase is must buy, uh, stocking stuffer. But um, uh, the way democracy works is, you know, I'm a broken record on this. Democracy is about disagreement, not about agreement. And when you have two healthy parties, they test each other. They look for flaws in the other's policies. They look for ways to pick off voters from the other coalition. And that is one of the things that makes sort of, our system anti fragile and robust in all sorts of ways. I think the problem. Well, you, you tell me. But like, it, it's is it, the, it are primaries the the actual problem or are they a problem because of the polarization that we've experienced? When you and I first came to Washington, if someone said they were a Republican or a Democrat, you'd ask you have to ask a follow up question to find out whether they were a liberal or a conservative and. That's really not the case anymore. And so, when you have the big sort, when you have um, sort of ideological capture of both parties, is 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 the problem of primaries really just sort of downstream symptom of this larger dysfunction? Um, which doesn't mean primaries aren't a problem, but they're making their problem because of the larger problem of the polarization and the big sort.
0: Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So. My view on this, I'd be interested in yours, but my view is that that the mechanics of the situation and the politics of the situation are trapped in a doom loop. They're mm-hmm. reinforcing each other. What the political American Political Science Association wanted in the 40s or whenever that report was, was two parties that were each more ideologically homogeneous and distinct from the other party, which is kind of like the Democrats and the Republicans in the Reagan era, mm-hmm. Oh, you know, when they both had kind of consistent worldviews or maybe on into the Clinton there, what they didn't wanted was two coalitions of piebald groups that absolutely loathe each other. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that are in their party, not so much out of loyalty to their own party, but out of hatred for the other. And that's where we are today. So why does that happen? Um, well, yes, to some extent it causes dysfunctional primaries, but also dysfunctional primaries cause polarization. So How do they do that? Well, in the famous phrase of the political scientist, uh, Morris Fiorina, there can be no moderate voters if there are no moderate candidates. Mm -hmm. So if what the primaries are throwing up are candidates who are well to the left or well to the right of the median voter, median voters get exasperated. They stay home or they just vote on straight party lines, but they get disgusted. Meanwhile, the people getting elected to Congress become more and more polarized and extreme, as we've seen. That deters both moderate candidates and ideological candidates who are interested in compromise and problem solving. They are deterred from running in the first place because they got better things to do. You know, they're the car dealer in Shamokin. They don't want to be in a dysfunctional institution and get nothing done. So they're not running. So that fuels the cycle where you get more and more radicals, like, you know, you can name them, pushing themselves forward, attracting even more of the primary voters who are energized and excited by those people, driving more of the moderates away, forcing more of these choices in which moderation is sidelined, driving polarization because, of course, the result is parties that drift increasingly to the right and left of center and have more and more reason to have an, an attitude of apocalyptic fear to the other side. So primaries are the symptom. They're also the cause. It's a classic cycle, I think. Do you think that sounds right?
1: Yeah, no, it reminds me, I I quote this all the time, you know, in, um, in politics in the English language, Orwell has this line where he says, a man can feel himself to be a failure and take to drink because of it and become all the more of a failure because he drinks, right? It's like, we've got dysfunction that the primaries make more dysfunctional and then make us more addicted to primaries, um, in the process. And it's sort of an auto catalytic thing. I, I, I think that's right. I do think, um, there are, you know, I'm, 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 I'm passionately against monocausal explanations of anything. Um, but I, I do think that the primaries are one of the biggest drivers of all of this. You know, I, It took me a while to realize that, that politicians still have the incentive to, um, get reelected. It's just that the, 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 the inflection point of getting reelected is now the primaries rather than the general election. And that changes the entire incentive structure about how you vote, how you govern, how you campaign, how you do media. But there are other factors. For example, I think campaign finance reforms of the 1990s, um, and, um, have weakened the parties enormously, right? I'm, I'm a strong parties guy because I think you get, you, you, strong partisanship, strong partisanship comes from weak parties. And when you have parties that are deeply invested in their long-term interests, um, they perform a gatekeeper function. They, 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 do a better job of weeding out filtering as we were talking about before who the best candidates are who are essentially spokesmen for a party and um and by i I think mitch mcconnell had it right when he said that the campaign finance law um was a bickra or whatever was that um it didn't take money out of politics it took the parties out of politics
0: and it would have been better yep took money out of the parties Yeah, parties used to use money as an important sort of mechanism of control. Now, now remember, in the days of the invisible primary, the parties were not in a position to say, you win, you lose. It's much more subtle than that, but they are in a position to say, look, Jonah, you're busy with your car dealership, but you have leadership potential, and we'd like to tap you to run for secretary of state in Arizona, and you say, why should I do that? And the party says, well, we can make it pretty easy for you to win this race. We can steer a lot of money to you. We can discourage donors from maybe supporting some of this this other crazy person over here who we're trying to block. And you say, okay, I'll take that deal. So you get a pragmatic candidate who's accountable to the party, who then launches a political career. And so money was one of the many ways that party professionals used to put their thumb on the scales, not overwhelmingly. You know, if you just couldn't campaign and you flopped, you flopped, right? That happened all the time too. But, but yeah, the notion of campaign finance reform was always the money is driving politics and the big money is evil and we should have lots of small donors. And guess what? It turns out that small donors tend to be the same types of people who vote in primaries. They tend to be motivated by strong ideology and they tend not to like compromise and they tend to get wound up with the equivalent of late night infomercials. You know, this, this is the demagogic candidates who say that the Democrats are going to ban hamburgers. Um, the bigger money, the money from, you know, the big packs and the corporations and the unions and whatnot, and we, we don't have to love that, and I don't. But these are people who are interested in governing, who want fairly responsible, reliable, accountable people in government, um, and that tends not to be true of the small-dollar donors. So by shifting the money away from the parties, which, as you say, are the the entities in politics with kind of an overarching view, and the only entities with an overarching view, driving that money from the parties, you instead drove it to first, small donors who tend to be extreme, and second, independent outside groups, which by law are not allowed to, can, to, to excuse me, coordinate with candidate campaigns or parties. So they're rogue actors, right? They're doing all these negative ads and the candidate can't even control what's being said in the campaign. So you've weakened the party, you've driven the money to less accountable and more extreme places, Um, bad idea. And we knew that at the time, I think, at least Mitch McConnell, and I was against the BICRA reform for some of those reasons. It did what it was intended to do. It's just that what it was intended to do was never the right type of thing to be doing, which is, you know, disintermediating politics and driving the middlemen and the professionals and the establishments out of it.
1: This might be the place for a broader uh, philosophical meditation. There's a tendency in society um, to freak out about the Mm -hmm. thing that you have the least reason to freak out about, right? So, like, free speech has never been freer, but we've been freaking out about it for 15 years. Religious freedom, yeah. Yeah, religious freedom is is arguably... Yeah, we're
0: about to lose Christmas. Yeah, and
1: um, I basically think that this complete... Sustain freak out about the perniciousness of the quote unquote establishment and of elites um, is another example of this kind of thing. The problems we have in our society with, with some like uh, there's some exceptions to this to be sure, um, but a lot of our problems have to do with just as they have to do our, our political problems have to do with weak parties, um, a, a lot of our broader problems have to do with weak elites. Who tend to be far more answerable to sort of left wing populist or right wing populist demands, uh, much more susceptible to various fads, um, um, and much less concerned with being an elite for the country, and much more concerned with being an elite for a, a fairly narrow constituency or ideological constituency. Um, um, and I think that, that this problem and like, uh, you know, the establishment thing is, is, is a much easier argument to make because right now the Republican establishment, first of all, the Republican establishment is mostly a Trump establishment. And yet odds are, if you hear someone screaming and bleeding about the Republican establishment, they're going to be a Trump person or they're going to be Donald Trump himself. Um, and this, there's a whole straw man thing about how the establishment runs everything and there are these rhinos and they're, they're, they're in league with the Satanist uniparty uni of the globalists or whatever. Um, and I just, it f- feels like a big part of our problems is that we are misdiagnosing, um, what ails us. And we live in a sort of institutionalized populist age. Uh, tell me I'm wrong
0: well institutionalized populism is an interesting term i'll have to figure that one out um uh, i can expand on it but, i mean look but, i'll give you an yeah. the
1: poetry foundation i can't remember what it was called but like at the height of the black lives matter thing the poetry foundation where uh they basically threw away all of their bylaws to subscribe to these various sort of mm-hmm. uh, uh sort of critical race theory or whatever term you want to apply to it, where they want to do a tone where the poets all demanded that the leadership resign, um, because they were giving into this, this mass fad. I'm not saying that the things that black lives matter cared about were wrong, but if you look at the number of institutions out there that have very little backbone to standing up to, um, uh, popular movements more on the left than on the right these days, um, it's, it's kind of astonishing, you know. Um, anyway, that's sort of what I meant about the sort of institutionalized politics. Yeah,
0: yeah, I, I, I get it. These are the elites who spend all day bashing elites mm-hmm. and the institutions that spend all day talking about the failure of institutions, <laughs> though never quite seeming to accept that they're part of the problem. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you here, I think, with a friendly amendment. And I'm going to make a distinction... Um, I'll say for people who are interested in this, I wrote an article about it for national affairs a couple of years ago called The War on Professionalism. I want to make a distinction between elites and professionals. And I want to agree with you that a lot of our elites um have essentially turned themselves into self-promotion machines um, on the left, on the right. You can fill in the details. The same is not true for our professionals. These are, in fact, the people who saved us in the Trump era. These are Don McCann, the White House lawyer, who walked into the Oval Office with his resignation letter in his pocket and who just refused when Trump told him to obstruct justice. These are the courts who are kicking MAGA and election deniers out of the courtroom. These are the, I would put, Mitch McConnell in this class. You can love him, you can hate him, but he's an institutionalist. He cares about the Senate. Um, And he is trying to preserve some control over the chaos that's at the door of that chamber, on and on and on. The Constitution, the founder's vision was a hybrid of direct popular input plus professional management. I mean, elections are only every two to four years, right? So you can only have so much popular input. And another way of saying, I think what you're saying, but tell me if I'm, I'm right about this, So really starting in the 60s and then accelerating after that, you get three kinds of contingents that are all beating up on institutions and professionalism. You get libertarians who basically think maximum personal freedom all the time. Any type of intermediation is a restriction on freedom. You get progressives who say burn baby burn, want social revolution, maximum change all the time. And you get conservatives who come to think that the establishment is a bunch of liberals raid against them, not always false. But they then become rabid anti-institutionalists, culminating in the MAGA movement, which is really, I think, nihilistic. It really doesn't have a positive agenda. It's just about tearing down institutions. Um, well, when you got progressives, conservatives, and libertarians against you, you're in bad shape, and that's where we are. Um, so this notion that you need professionals, you need intermediaries, you need people who say in a situation, okay, what is the proper way to handle this? How has it been done in the past? What are the rules? Why do we need the rules? How do we transmit the rules and refine the rules? Once you start throwing that all out the window on ideological grounds, you get chaos. And we got a lot of chaos.
1: No, I, I think that is a, it is, a, it is a useful distinction and I'm, I'm fine with it. I do think that um again m- monocausal explanations are a problem right and social media exacerbates this stuff also just the rise of technology exacerbates this stuff where um i mean we're both fans of uh yuval Levin, um technology lets people use institutions as platforms in ways that were probably much more difficult Forty years ago, right? Um, um, it was very difficult to sort of develop your own cult of personality. As I'm just saying uh, for an example, as a Washington Post reporter, if the only outlet that w- was writing you were writing for it was Washington Post, right?
0: You know, I mean, your brands were aligned. The notion that it, when I started my career in in the 80s, that you could, you know, be a 25 year old writing an opinion column for the Washington Post was ludicrous, right? You know, people would say, "Come back in 15 years when you know something." Um, Now that had its downsides, you know, there's, there's ups and downs to all of this stuff, but, but yeah, the cult of deinstitutionalization and disintermediation, um, I think is at the core of all of everything we're talking about today. The notion that wherever you see an institution or a professional who's trying to organize a situation and deal with it in a coherent way that you're looking at a schemer who should be removed from the, from the picture. That's the fundamental problem
1: getting to the sort of broader philosophical thing. Most of my life, I felt it very easy to be a critic of, uh, of uh, to sort of be part of the conservative mainstream, right? Um, I was fairly popular, made a nice living at it. I liked my colleagues. I agree with them. I respected them. And I still respect the guys I work with at National Review. And I love the guys I work with at AI, and all the rest. But, um, you know, in my problem with the left in certain slices of libertarianism was, um, this both hard and soft versions of it, of this belief that you can start over at year zero, right? This sort of subtle utopian notion. I've long believed that the most important argument of the 20th century wasn't between Hayek and Keynes, which gets all the fun YouTube videos. Um, it was really by extension between Hayek and Dewey like this, like the cult of experts that said a handful of experts can know everything that can plan the market. They're smarter than the market. They're smarter than, um, the masses versus someone like Hayek who says, no, 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 we need, you know, prices are systems of discovery and blah, 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 blah. I mean, you know, all this stuff better than I do. And, and so I would never saw, except among a bunch of, um, to use a social science term, a bunch of jackasses, you know, who were attacking me with, sort of anti-Semitic stuff or, you know, or whatever, I just didn't see a lot of radicalism on the right. I mean, there were some things that you could describe as radical ideas every now and then, or you can certainly call them more like extreme ideas, but they they weren't technically radical, by which I mean, tearing things down without much thought or concern about what comes next. And there is now an enormous amount of radicalism on the right you call it nihilism. That's fine with me too. It's like, but the whole point of radicalism is it's only concerned with tearing down existing institutions on the weird sort of bet that what comes after that, that they'll be able to rule the rubble or whatever, but it's, it, there's not a real positive agenda to it. And I think part of my problem with, with intellect, with American intellectual life today is, um, there just aren't an enormous number of people willing to make this argument that you're making about the professionals, um, to making the case that rules exist for a reason, you know, that there's a, they're, they're chestered in fences all over the place. Um, and instead it is a very Rousseauian, um, uh, Rawlsian as, as your colleague Francis Fukuyama would put it in the liberal, uh, in his book about liberalism, um, It is this approach on the left and the right um, that presupposes they know what the perfect social arrangements are going to be and the existing social arrangements are all standing in the way of it. And, um,
0: And I don't know how you fix that other than letting the fever run its course. Well, the fix it part is hard. We'll come back to that. I guess I would only add, since we're thinking this through, that you tell me if this is right, but that that I perceive a change. The, the change that you mentioned is right. The radicalization of the Republican Party is absolutely correct. And if a lot of things have shocked me in the past six years, nothing has shocked me more than the crumbling of the conservative establishment, which had a whole worked-out philosophy. In fact, mm-hmm. several of them. There was the Paul Ryan version, and then there was the you know the the more Burkean version. Uh, you know the kind of thing that you would hear from maybe someone like Mitt Romney. The crumbling of all that almost instantly in the face of populist nihilism astonished me. It was, it was as if everything that we thought we knew about conservatism for 50 years went up in smoke. And Maybe you can explain that to me. But I also see a change here that, that the kind of radicalism that, that you and I kind of grew up with, 60s, 70s, And that was instantiated in in Lenin and in some ways Mao and in some ways, you know, Hitler, frankly, was a utopian radicalism. Mm -hmm. They had bonkers ideas. They were going to do what happened in Kampuchea, you know, mass starvation in order to impose some crazy governing scheme. But they did think they had a plan to save humanity. It's not clear to me that woke leftism, let's call it that, I know it's controversial, but let's just use that for now, that, that woke leftism has a plan. Its plan seems to be a kind of permanent revolution based on the notion that racism is eternal and you, you just have to keep digging it out anywhere and everywhere where you see differences between races or for that matter, any other groups of people. But there's no end point there. There's no promised land and on the right does trumpian have any outcome at all or is it just perpetual trolling figure out what the liberals hate and keep doing more of that until the end of time so this strikes me as a little bit new and a little bit weird and maybe in some ways a little bit more disturbing than when you, you at least thought you had a sense of of what the radicalism was aiming toward am i wrong about that mm-hmm.
1: no i i i think you're right i mean I, I, you know a a it's an arguably better term I mean, i agree woke leftism is a fine enough term for me um because in part you're using it as a as a stand-in or a caricature for as a generalization where you're perfectly willing to concede that you know there's there are good arguments on the left and all this but another another phrase is just social justice right and the the I'm very much on team Hayek when it comes to the phrase social justice. Um, I think it is, um, you know, that, that justice needs to, justice as a concept requires very specific people with, as they would say in the law, standing, um, and that you can't have notions of intergenerational justice or collective justice without really endangering the liberal project. and. Um, And when I went back, when I was writing my second book, I went and looked for definitions of social justice and they are all over the place. It is just basically a writ that empowers a certain group of people to win arguments by invoking social justice, as far as I can tell. Um, um, And I think now the uh, the common good conservatism stuff is the same thing, right? It's, It's my colleague, David French likes to say, when you hear you know, common good constitutionalism or common good, you know, conservatism, just think of it as right-wing social justice. Um, and it is an attempt by a certain group of elites to say, we are empowered. We have the epistemological expertise to design society the way that we want to do it. And I hate horseshoe theory, but that's sort of where we are now. Um, and you have two parties who, um, rail about elites, right? Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders talk about, you know, the millionaires and billionaires who control everything. It's a conspiracy theory. It's not true. And you have, uh, you know, all sorts, you know, take your pick deep state, uh, you know, as that jackass who's the chairman at the Claremont Institute, uh, uh, Klingenstein, the one who said that Trump's boorishness is his feature, not a bug. And that he epitomizes manliness. you know, he calls it woke communism or whatever i mean like you can pick pick your boogeyman wherever you want if you're kanye west it's the jews whatever um but there is this assumption out there that there are elites who are actually running everything and if we can just get them out of the way we know what to do and i think this is one of the most pernicious things that you know when the left did it it was very easy for me to criticize the problem is this, now the right does it too uh, but when you say that we know exactly how to deliver us into the kingdom of heaven on earth and fix all of our problems and all of our social arrangements. And it's really easy. And all you have to do is elect us and we will do it. And then they fail to do it. They don't say, oops, it turns out we were wrong. They say, oops, we were thwarted by these cold, imperson- you know, these, these unseen forces of globalists or Jews or billionaires or, who, or, or the gun lobby or whatever. And that, that turns human beings into the obstacles for a public policy solution. And, um, you know, there's a guy from the New York Times who wrote about how, you know, we should just simply abolish billionaires. You know, you can hate billionaires or love billionaires or whatever, but the idea that you're going to take a whole category of people and get rid of them and that'll fix your social, your your public policy problems is a problematic way to think about things. And um, so anyway, to answer your question about why it happened on the right, I, I think a big chunk of it has to do with, audience capture, the audience got the, the, the market, uh, for conservative stuff got radicalized, I think in part because of how they were unfairly treated during the tea party era. Um, but for other reasons as well. And cable news with its, particularly Fox, obviously with its, its skill at nut picking about basically saying the entire country was just one giant drag queen story hour, um, freaked out a lot of older people. Trump was very good about appealing to people's lizard brains, and so you saw the market go in one direction, the customer base go in one direction, and a lot of these institutions that didn't think that thought they were leading the, the the customers turned out they were following the customers. And you saw it first in talk radio, then you saw it in basically any institution that relies on a mass customer base or donor base. Um, I think it explains the ongoing problems at the Heritage Foundation because they are addicted to a mass audience of, of small donors in effect. Um, and it affected the politicians because they're addicted to small donors. And then, it, you know, the, the the primary stuff exacerbated all of that. I'm sorry for the rant, but that's just what's coming in my head.
0: Oh, well, you put, a, actually, you, you put a lot of pieces together uh, quite well. The the point on which I think I disagree is that, as I said earlier, I think the the problem has migrated away from the traditional kind of left-wing utopianism that for example, Popper and Hayek were so critical of and soul and so on, where mm-hmm. you know they've got some vision of social justice and they want to impose it on all of us and and ignore the individual. I think that's you know that was thirty years ago, and now we really are talking about something much more like nihilism and just hating on the other side, and you don't really care what the policy outcome is. And, you know, child tax credit, no child tax credit. You just want to f- those assholes. If that's different, maybe harder to deal with. Uh, the point on which you're, I think right is the way you you weave all these things together. So let's go there though if 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 we can. Let's let's go to race and let's go to my my old friend Max Boot who's <laughs> undergone a conversion experience and will say and is not the only one to say, "Look guys, let's face it. Race is a big part of the radicalization of the Republican right. It may not be old-fashioned southern-style racism where you want separate drinking fountains, but it is whites basically conservative Christian whites who feel entitled to run the country, who feel threatened by the rise of other groups and a kind of pluralism they haven't seen before. And so they're doing whatever they need to do to retain power and race lies at the bottom of it. And how else do you explain, you know, Trump's rise to power on the birther theory and tweeting things like, you know, American-born African-Americans should go back to their country and so forth. Do you think he's right? Uh, No. I mean, I is he partially right? Sure. You know, uh, I think
1: I underestimated the degree to which some of the opposition to Obama was race-based to be sure, but where to start? So like I've lived in conservative institutions, um, my entire professional life, right? AI, national review, um, various other, um, places. And When I heard people like, I don't know, Jonathan Chait, who made similar arguments for years, you know, um, about how race is a big driver of conservative policies and so forth. Among the sort of elites that I knew, it just rang false, right? So I'm not talking about party people. I'm just talking about the sort of intellectual types. It just rang false. And um, we just didn't have those kinds of, I wasn't privy to those kinds of conversations. I didn't hear about those kinds of conversations. occasionally you would hear about some crackpot at the fringe and but for the most part uh the sort of uh white panic racism stuff was not um part of my worldview and like when john derbyshire at at nr who was an immensely talented guy when it became clear that either he was uh becoming more racist or couldn't let or or, or couldn't felt Lazy about hiding it anymore. We fired him, um, and uh, all that said, I on it, like so. I, I on it, I, It's I drive a lot of people crazy with this, but I think there's a lot of blame to go around, and I think that one of the reasons why the critical race theory stuff, the Ibram Kendi stuff, is so Incendiary on the right is because it kind of makes plain the argument that liberals were making for a very long time that basically if you disagree with them, you're racist, right? Imam Kindi's position is you can't be race neutral. You have to be anti-racist. And people like him get to define what anti-racism means. And um I, I bring this up all the time, but you know, it was telling, it was an interesting tell that. At the height of the Tea Party stuff, probably the two most popular Tea Party figures were Herman Cain and Ben Carson. Now, flawed people, that's a perfectly fine argument to make, but I think that was a tell that a lot of conservatives, including pretty radical ones, really, really resent being called racist. I know that this was one of the driving passions for um, my late friend Andrew Breitbart. It was that it drove him crazy how... Conservatives were always called the racist ones simply for disagreeing with whatever Democrats wanted to do. Now, I'm willing to stipulate that there was some racism on the right, but I don't think people who want to make that argument that, as you characterized it, are are sufficient, are sufficient willing to sufficiently acknowledge the degree to which um, a lot of conservatives were radicalized by that kind of discourse over the last 15 years. I can't tell you how many conservatives I would meet in airports or at speeches who would be enraged at the claims that were common in elite liberal circles that to disagree with Obamacare was because Barack Obama was black. It was, that, that kind of argument was made all the time and it infuriated a lot of right-wingers. I mean, it really infuriated and I think legitimately so because, you know, Conservatives have been opposed to what they think is socialized medicine for a very long time. Um, and then when you had, and, and before that, it was Hillary Clinton in the 1990s, which is if you had a problem with her healthcare plan, with Hillary care, it was because you were a sexist. And I think the, the rise of identity politics discourse on the left gave a lot of conservatives permission structure to embrace identity politics um, thinking on the right, which is poisonous and horrible. Um, but I think Colin Powell could have been the first black president of the United States quite easily um, in 1996 if he had opted to run. I'm not saying quite easily, I think it's quite plausible he could have. Um, and a lot of the people who are today older, presumably more racist types, would have voted for him with alacrity. Um, and so I, I think that it's too pat to talk about how. The right has always been racist, always been driven by racism. It is a much more dialectic thing where people take their cues from the other side and they get them all distorted. Now, I think the problem is, is that a lot of people on the right have convinced themselves it's okay to be racist. Or it's okay to say racist stuff that they may or may not actually believe, um, because it owns the libs. They've basically given themselves permission to be jackasses um, and sometimes actual bigots.
0: Well, they certainly believe we we know this from polls. They a, a majority of Republicans believe that whites are more discriminated against in America than blacks. Yeah, I think that's victimology
1: garbage. But like again, I think part of it comes from the balkanization of the, of the media stuff where you basically get, you consume the media you want to consume and no other. And so the lived experience for a lot of people is the stories they hear isn't really about racial discrimination against black people. The stories they hear is about, you know, uh, all white people being racist. Um, I mean, this is kind of rhetoric that lots of, um, of, of, of sort of squad adjacent Democrats use all the time. And Sherry Berman, Jonathan Haidt, a lot of people have written about this, that it is really bad to constantly accuse people of racism who aren't racist because it will make them more racist.
0: Yeah, so all of that can be, and I think is true, and it can also still be true that for whatever the reason, we now live in a world where white identity politics is a thing. I agree, and it's terrible. And is dominant in the Republican Party. I agree. Um, It's it's not old-fashioned racism. There's a political scientist named Ashley Jardina. You may may know her. You may have had her on on your show. You should. I think she's at Stanford. No, maybe not. Anyway, she makes a point that something really interesting happened in the Trump years, which is simultaneously you had the emergence of white identity politics, which is whites having stronger in-group feelings toward whites as whites. Mm -hmm. This growing consciousness, we are an embattled minority in America, which maybe in some sense they increasingly are, Meanwhile, the feeling thermometer toward blacks by these same whites actually got warmer. Mm -hmm. In other words, they deepen their own sense of whiteness and distinctiveness and embattledness while also feeling better, less negative toward black people. Mm -hmm. And you think, how can both these things be true? And in fact, they can be if one of the ways you're developing emotional security toward blacks is beginning to think of yourself as an embattled identity group That can protect itself against the outside world. The problem is when you get a party that's organized around conservative, white, primarily evangelical identity politics, you get a pretty toxic kind of radicalization, which is is what we've been talking about, if if that account is true. But it's important not to see this as just sort of old-fashioned, I hate black people. It's something different. I mean, it's closer to great replacement theory, which, you know, Tucker Carlson talks mm-hmm. about. You know, we're embattled. We are a group now. We're in trouble. It's an apocalyptic future if we don't need what we need to do to take our country back.
1: Yeah, and I, I think well, I, I was merely pushing back on the story that Max was endorsing. I think the story of how we got where we are is more complicated. Um,
0: but I yeah, can see about
1: where we are. I mean, I, 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 it's a bad place.
0: I'll just say in Max's defense, you know, I'm not necessarily all the way there, but, but you have to be pretty naive to be a student of American history and not think that race is going to be a component and that racism is going to be a component. You don't have to go with Yvonne Kemdi and all that. But I do take his point seriously. I, I, that's all fine. At the same time, like the,
1: the data on how much less racist this country is over the last 60 years is astounding you know uh the share of americans willing to
0: um marry uh, yeah marry each other live next oh, door they, to each other yeah. all of these things and even people if you are, people the- are much happier now with their daughter or son marrying someone of a different race than someone of the other party yeah which is crazy when you think about it um so i want to i'm jumping in too much here but, no, it's but great. you just But you you triggered, so my theory, my big picture ultimate theory of what happened to the Republican Party, which is consistent with what you just said, which is a massive general decline, a revolutionary change in attitudes toward race in America. That can be consistent with a toxic racial evolution of the Republican Party. And here's now, my one sentence history of the modern Republican Party is, Barry Goldwater got in a fight with Nelson Rockefeller and George Wallace won. (laughs) (laughs) And what happens here is that Wallace in 1968 identifies a constituency, which was then 20 to 25% of the electorate and is still 20 to 25% of the electorate, who are very mistrustful of institutions. They tend to be less educated. They tend to be less, uh, less urbanized um and they tend to feel that they're getting the short end of the stick in american society and wallace as you recall in 68 did not run as a racist he ran as a class warrior and that's what people were voting that's what made him nationally viable he won the, the massachusetts about,
1: primary he Won boston yeah, in the Massachusetts yeah primary. in
0: 76 he was winning the democratic primaries until those same groups of elders that we talked about cleared the field in florida to push him out they yeah. cleared the field for jimmy carter you could never do that today but so so the thing about the Wallace movement, though, is it was not partisan. You know, he runs first as an independent and then twice as a Democrat. Um, and, and, and the Wallace movement was disaggregated. It was kind of out there. It wasn't very politically active most of the time. It didn't have a partisan home. It wasn't organized. What happens in the Trump period, the run-up to the Trump period, maybe starting with all the way back to Buchanan, but certainly under Trump, is this 20 to 25% of the population, who we'll just call Wallace voters as a shorthand, consolidate in the Republican Party. And suddenly, that's where they are. They are nowhere else. They are concentrated. And 20 to 25% of the public is not enough to dominate the entire country, but it is enough to dominate the Republican Party, especially given the structure of the party and the dominance of the small states and the way the primaries are run and all of that. So now you have the bulk of the American public, which is much less racist. And in fact, the Wallace movement is much less racist, but it is still highly populist, highly suspicious of outsiders like immigrants and people, yes, let's say it, people of color. And they're now running a political party. And this is a game changer. So these, these elements of the story that you tell, they, they can be reconciled, I think, in that way. So is that crazy? No, I don't think it's crazy. I do think,
1: getting back to, my so a couple a couple things come to mind one is um it's really important to understand that part of the appeal of Trump and why the fox news universe where i was there watching it happen um became so enamored with him is that new york city has always had a kind of bridge and tunnel populism and um and what you particularly had were a A lot of people, including like most of the hosts on the network um, who had lived in New York or lived in Long Island or lived in New York and then moved to Long Island or North Jersey, moved to the suburbs. And there was this whole uh, imagined past about how great New York was until the blacks or um, the liberals ruined it. And it was this very powerful nostalgic appeal kind of thing that was goosed into overdrive by the nostalgia for what Rudy Giuliani did with the outer borough populations to become mayor and then impose, you know, then crack down on crime and all of these kinds of things. And there was just something about Trump who grew up in that milieu, who grew up, you know, very much part of that member, the whole, you know, uh, central park five stuff. He knew how to, you know, tickle the erogenous zones of people who liked those sort of the sort of Giuliani as law and order guy um, and as a New York Post populist. And the ability of Fox to then translate that into national populism was a big part of, of Trump's rise. And so, of course, race plays a part in that. But the thing that I think progressives or non-conservatives who want to make race the central part of this story which, again, I can see it as part of the story. Is that the people who piss off your run-of-the-mill Republican the most? The ones they really hate the most aren't black people. They aren't immigrants. They are uh, overeducated white progressives who, th- in the in the narrative that we're told, are importing immigrant voters. They're using black people as a sort of shield for their, as a a sort of poster children for their, um, progressive Trojan horse, let's be like Europe cradle to grave socialism kind of stuff. And they are demonizing other white people, right? It's sort of like the six tribes stuff that Hyde talks about and how, um, um, most of our arguments are between very white progressive lefties and very white cranky old, uh, white, white guys. And, um, so like the pajama boy guy, that is the person that, that, you know, that really arouses hatred and disdain because, and that's very Wallace like, right? It's the pointy headed intellectuals. It is the people who look down on real America, this phrase you'll hear all the time. Um, and, uh, and the gun culture stuff fits into that. Uh, you know, the gun culture stuff is a bigger driver of passions among a lot of Republicans than race ever will be. Um, and it's, uh, for good or for ill, I just think that's true. There are these cultural touchstones and shibboleths that have to do with basically this city mice versus country mice kind of dynamic that race is sometimes a proxy for, but is not central. And that's why, you know, this finding that you're talking about, about how people can become more invested in a white identity while actually having warmer feelings towards blacks makes total sense to me because the people they really hate are Beto O'Rourke.
0: Who, yes, who, yes. Who,
1: who 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 does this sort of confessional thing where he confesses his white sin he confesses how uh, all institutions are white supremacist and racist he basically throws under the bus other whites and that's what a lot of white people really hate about democrats and the 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 race stuff is is i'm not trying to dismiss it but it is it is the example that those people use to justify uh, their sort of righteousness.
0: Yeah, it's kind of a symbol, yeah. there's Somebody sent me a clip just yesterday of Senator John Neely Kennedy, I think Louisiana, is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, stumping in Georgia for Herschel Walker. Um, maybe I can send this to you for the show notes. And the clip is him saying things like, the people on the other side walk around with little bags full of kale in their pockets. <laughs> and I'm hearing this and he's saying it in this, you know, I, I think he probably amped up his Southern accent because mm-hmm. um, I don't think he sounds like that on TV. Yeah, I think he
1: went to Harvard and Oxford, by the way. I mean, yeah, mean right. He does boob date stuff really well, but it's, it's, it's an act.
0: And the whole speech is like this, the, at least the clip I saw, you know, a minute and a half. And I'm thinking... This is right out of George Wallace's mm-hmm, mouth. Mm-hmm. They want to make you eat kale. Yeah, yeah. They carry it around with them so so they can force <laughs> you to eat kale. And I'm thinking that's it right there. Yeah,
1: it's like the and like again, I, like if, I mean, if you're asking how a lot of this stuff happened, I've been a critic of mainstream media all my life. It was my bread and butter. I've you know made a living out of it as a me- conservative media critic and all the rest. But the degree to which the right has convinced itself that the New York Times and the Washington Post and the mainstream media and CNN and the legacy media and blah, 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 run our lives, control the narrative, uh, denigrate us, are part of this conspiracy with the Democratic Party and all that, has reached astoundingly paranoid levels. At the same time, the power of the mainstream media has shrunk. And this is part of this populist anti um, Elite thing that drives a lot of stuff, and and the only reason I, I added in there is like one of the reasons why conservatives, I mean, at this point, a lot of conservatives hate the media that they don't consume, right? They all they see are the clips that make it on Fox or make it on talk radio that are the worst examples, and it's it's kind of a version of nut picking. But at the same time, the condescension that you get from the big sort and from the role that academia plays in in sort of placing people in elite journalism, that pisses off, you know, on a day-to-day basis, if you can go to almost any sort of conservative, hardcore MAGA conservative meeting, and you will hear 10 times more about the media, and how the media is ruining everything, the media is full of lives, the media stole the election, the media kept us from hearing about Hunter Biden's laptop, yada, 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 um, than you'll ever hear about, oh, those blacks. And, um, which is again, not to say that some of the media stuff might be a stalking horse for racial stuff or whatever, but it's just, it's the condescension from, from people who they believe control the commanding heights of the culture that I think brings out the inner Wallace voter in a lot of these people. Or, more or the, than the race stuff. I think
0: the perceived, the perceived contempt, which is a greatly exaggerated contempt, I hear far more contempt from the MAGA right toward anything and everything including america oh, sure. than i ever hear from the left you know they they open their mouths and 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 a f- you know they breathe a fire of contempt so what does a party or a country do when it is captured by this profoundly alienated radicalized politics of resentment that doesn't represent the majority of the country, may not even represent a majority of the party, but has made itself an unavoidable obstacle to conventional politics.
1: That's what I, I asked you a while ago about, whether the, we just have to wait for the, the the fire to burn out or the fever to break, because
0: I, I don't have a great answer to this, because I think... Well, we could go back to primaries. <laughs> um, oh, to fixing primaries? We could, we could end where we began and talk about ideas for yeah, I should do
1: that's a good idea. I like it when you moderate this podcast. What should we yeah, do about- it? I'm, a- I'm good at this. I should become a journalist. <laughs> what, you, what, what would you David, do? David
0: French and I will co-host this podcast from now on. You can you can go away. Works for me. So, so a few things about primaries. There's some good news. I think it's good news, which is that the political reform community, which I'm going to go out on a limb here and be crude, but I think until fairly recently, it's kind of had its head up its butt being way too worried about political money. And I think there's been in the last three, four years, a, a real awakening to the problem of the primaries and that that's a bigger problem than money. If you're interested in governing, if you're interested in representation, democracy, the whole works. So there's now an intense focus on on this problem. So there's There's two kinds of solutions. There's a solution that I think would work but appears to be out of reach right now. And there's a solution that people are trying that might work. The solution that would work is simply to move back toward a partnership between party professionals and the voters. And the parties could do that simply by deciding stuff like, for example, in order to get on the ballot or appear on the debate stage, you're going to have to get the endorsement of, I don't know, 40, 50 percent of the state and county party chairs in your state. And they can do that. Parties can nominate any way they please. Um, so they could uh, have, as my colleague Elaine K. has suggested, kind of pre-primary beauty contest, mm-hmm. which would kind of indicate to the public who's really got a shot at, at winning. They let people make their cases. She says Massachusetts does something like that. They could do something as simple as what Colorado did in the 2016 Republican nomination process, which is send uncommitted delegates to the convention. That's how you get smoke-filled rooms, right? You have delegates who aren't committed, and so they have to go to the convention, put heads together, and decide. Mm -hmm. The point here is there is no shortage of ways to bring professionals back into the nominating process in partnership with the primaries. You just have to decide to do it. The problem is that right now the politics are such that there aren't enough people um, in the reform community who want to do that. And there aren't enough people in the parties who are confident enough of their own clout and their ability to make it stick. Their confidence has been demolished by everything that's happened in the last six years. Ironically, one group of people that does want to hear more from professionals in the nominating process, they want more guidance is the American public. Mm-hmm. Rayla Raja polled them on this. And it turns out they think the right division of responsibilities between the establishment and the voters is about one-third establishment and two-thirds voters, which seems about right to me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the public is not the problem here. That's the direction I would go there because I don't think any mechanical mechanical shift reform that you'll ever come up with is a substitute for human beings in the loop at some point saying – you know what? Goldberg is a better candidate for this district than Roush. We think he'll win the general. We think he can govern. Let's move Roush. Let's see if we can persuade him to run for school board. You've got to have human beings in the loop. Okay. Suppose we stipulate that's not going to (laughs) happen. So what the reform world is now focused on is essentially abolishing primaries. Um, This has been tried in Alaska with some success. I think Maine is doing it. Um, and, and the way this works is you have, instead of each party having its own primary where, where whoever has the largest plurality wins, which means there are five candidates, the extremists who manage to get 25% wins the nomination, then wins the general election. You can't do that anymore. You have everybody in one giant single primary and the top five winners of that go on to the general election, which is done by rank choice voting, which... Some people think encourages, you know, makes more space for moderates to get through, um, makes the playing field less tipped against moderates. So Alaska just tried that. Senator Murkowski got reelected as a result um, because she had the support in the state, but not in among Republican primary voters. In that sense, it was more representative. Some people are calling it a success. I say, you know, in this situation... I don't think it's a panacea. I think in most races, most of the time, it won't make much difference. But I'm happy for states to try it. Um, I think the primary system that we have is so broken that trying this new alternative is well worth our time. I'm with you on that.
1: I mean, I'm, I'm glad. I, I, I wish the rollout for legalized marijuana had been done as slow and painstakingly uh, localized as the rollout of, of jungle primary stuff. Because I like the little laboratory of democracy experiments to kick the tires, see if someone can figure out how to game it. But I'm, I'm encouraged and I'm hopeful about it. Um, I really wouldn't mind nominating conventions with, you know, where the, who gets to be a delegate has something to do
0: with the position and the expertise, the position you hold and the expertise that you have. Yeah, Democrats still have that. We call them superdelegates, which means every elected official, you know, it's not enough. We need more of that. But yeah, that's the idea. Glenn Youngkin was nominated, I think, in a nominating convention with representation by party professionals. And guess what? He's a star. Right.
1: And you need to be a little, you you need to have gatekeepers on that kind of thing. I mean, I often point out that the reason why you got Jeremy Corbyn as the head of the Labor Party was because the party decided to democratize itself and it still didn't go as far as primaries, but what it did do is say, basically it was a nominal one pound fee to be able to vote at the nominating convention. And the worst political dregs of the left all showed up and put this, you know, problematic guy at the head of the party. And, you know, hundred
0: percent predictable. Yeah. France also moved in the direction of primaries. Your listeners should know that America is the only country among modern democracies that relies on primaries for nominations, but some other countries have moved in that direction and France did in, in its previous election. Right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And the result
0: yeah. was you got, you got crazy people getting nominated. Yeah. So, so yeah, this is, this is a place where as Garrett Jones, the economist at GMU says we could use 10% less democracy. Right. Cause democracy, again, we're both very pro-democracy, but, uh, getting
1: back to the, 1950 report. You know, um, democracy is what happens between parties, not within parties. And um, the idea that somehow the political parties can't govern themselves. I mean, think of another. Instit- what other institutions in American life do they just farm out to voters the most important decisions that they can make? You know, um, you
0: know what? C CEO CEO or, a business, or, a, or a small subset know. of voters. You know, things would. That's right. One reform that Elaine talks about is figuring out ways to get broader turnout in primaries. And something I played with is the idea of requiring a quorum. If the party can't get a certain number of its voters out, then it doesn't have a nominee. I don't think that'll work in practice, but it's another way of thinking about the problem.
1: Yeah, I mean, as a thought experiment, I keep coming back to, I'm against mandatory voting for constitutional reasons. Um, But it's an interesting thought experiment that if you required every American to vote, of legal age and el- eligibility and all that the incentive structure that's created by the primaries goes away overnight because uh all of a sudden you're going to go look for voters in the medius part of the bell curve rather than at the fringe and um and that's the problem that we had is that it used to be you yeah you tacked the right or you tacked to the left in the primaries but then once you got the nomination you tacked to the center But because of the big sort, you now have candidates who the only point of real vulnerability is in the primary, not in the general. And so they don't have the incentive structure to get the median, you know, reasonable voter of whom there are many more because they know they're going to win because they're in a very red place or a very blue place.
0: Well, maybe a a good point to uh, to wrap things up is to say. I too am skeptical of mandatory voting, um, not primarily for constitutional reasons, but because it could result in a large influx of very low information voters. And those may be people who are guided by the extreme voices on social media. You know, you know nothing except that someone is telling you that, I don't know, Hillary Clinton needs babies or whatever it is, which is why I keep coming to emphasizing, I'm, I'm happy to experiment with these mechanical process changes, but at the end of the day, we need to to get back to a place where we understand the need for professionals in the loop you just at some point you've got to have human beings in a position to say you know what let's let's do some organizing of the candidate field let's help make some choices here no we're not going to decide it all on our own but but we will have some say in the process for for the party
1: all right Jonathan Rauch of the Brookings Institution. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it um, and I hope to have you back on uh, sometime soon you know, and if you and David want to just hijack the podcast, you're allowed to
0: we'll just we'll just kick you off
1: okay, so Jonathan has left the studio uh, um, I didn't mean to sort of steal the commentary podcast's uh monopoly on crushing morosity um, um and it was nice to have Jonathan actually take over moderating duties a little bit and ask me questions. Um, I suspect that we're gonna get some interesting feedback on this one because um um there were just some places where opinions will vary in the comment section. I'll just leave it at that. Um uh so today is Monday. Uh, I've just recorded two podcasts back to back. I'm going to see if we can get another one or two in the can for while I'm gone. Um, but uh, um, we may have some guest hosts coming in the nearest future. Because um, I leave this week uh, for my much deserved and overdue um, vacation. So uh, thanks for listening. Obviously um, I have... Many thoughts on all the stuff that we discussed, but there's time to to, uh, discuss all this further because the problems aren't going away anytime soon. Um, There is a little time left, though, for you to become a a paid member of the Dispatch. You can subscribe. You can give a gift subscription. Um, It's really important to us. It's really important for us. It's really important um, for us to continue expanding and doing the things that we think are really important to do. And um, our continued success makes a lot of the right people angry. Not that that's a good reason to live your life um, that way, but um, sometimes it's satisfying. So with that, uh, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.
0: No, you won't. This is a podcast.